episode seven of this lecture slash podcast series. Um, if things sound a little different, it's because I'm testing a new microphone that I got or a different microphone that I got, I'm trying to make a decision between the two. So bear with me. Um, the rest of them may sound like this if I decide I like it, or they may go back to the other one. We'll see. Um, either way, this episode is called Break Shit and Rebuild Part 1. And today we're going to jump into the next unit, which is based in postmodernism. So as we've described and discussed, the faith and progress that defined the period of time leading up to modernism and that was inherent in modernism itself was utterly shattered by the world wars. Everything we thought we knew about ourselves and about the world we had created and about the beliefs that had been that world's foundation suddenly seemed to be an utter failure. And the scale of the destruction, the level of death and suffering left the world collectively stunned and traumatized, terrified of itself and for the first time terrified that humans would destroy themselves that became a real very real possibility and yet uh, people had to live their lives had to move forward had to raise kids and eat and work and all that in some ways i think we these days can understand the tension people lived under during this time period a tension between the constant fear of another world war a nuclear one uh, which could break out and the will to live to grow and to be human especially now during the pandemic i think we get this uh, but for us, these days, the world seems to have kind of gotten used to the various threats, and they seem a little bit distant. We, we, we have a very high tolerance for this type of thing. But in the decorate, decades immediately after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or Hiroshima, um, I'm sorry about my pronunciation again, as more and more nuclear tests were, were done, the threat was there in a very immediate way. And so it's from this soil that the movement of postmodernism was born. Now, postmodernism, like all the other theories that we've looked at, touched all aspects of artistic endeavor um, and we're focusing on literature so we're going to talk about literature and in general postmodernism is nearly impossible to define and there, there are two reasons for this the first is that the literature that came out of the immediate aftermath of the wars was unlike anything that ever had ever been seen before and was so various and multifaceted that it literally it really just defies categorization the second is that the project the writers set themselves upon involved the complete severing of themselves from the social, historical, and artistic traditions that they had felt led them so close to destruction. It wasn't so much like modernism where they were trying to undermine and rethink them. They were trying to destroy them. They were trying to remove them entirely. Uh, but regardless of all that, I think some generalizations can be made. And, and for this section, I'm relying on... Um, a intro to critical theory textbook that I was I used I've used in my classes and that I used when I was in college. Um, it's got a number of writers and one of these writers' name last name is Bennett. Um, if you want more information about this book and about the writers, let me know and I can send you the information. Um, but this gentleman has spent some time trying to kind of parse out, at least in a way that intro or early students of literature can understand. Um, newer students of literature can understand, trying to parse out and define postmodernism. So um, for this section, Bennett says, quote, the postmodern challenges our thinking about time, challenges us to see the present in the past, the future in the present, the present in a kind of no time, end quote. So what had looked like a linear progression from bad to better now in the wake of the wars did not seem to make much sense. Our growing rationalism and scientific abilities had somehow led us to a place that seemed to be of greater barbari barbarism, barbarism sorry, than any time in the past. So for postmodernists, the rational rationality itself that had built the modern world, that had built cities and factories and cars and washing, machine, washing machines and finally atomic bombs, was suspect and up for criticism. Something that separates postmodernism from modernism. 
with this devaluing of rationality and logic, which in many ways was a response to the dehumanizing effects of the 19th and early 20th century science, uh, the move from the spiritual human to the biological one, led to a kind of philosophical diaspora, an overwhelming skepticism about literally everything that proliferated like crazy. And this caused people to, people's thinking in the academic and the philosophical circles to just, just branch out in all sorts of directions. And the postmodernists leaned into this process. While previous generations had criticized their traditions, like the modernists did, this is something that's common throughout all of humanity, there had always been the sense that there was, in the end, some sort of truth, some sort of center that could eventually be arrived at. Postmodernists did away with this notion and with the idea of truth itself. They got rid of it entirely. For the postmodernists, there is no truth to arrive at. Um, the entire concept for them is flawed. Rather, postmodernists kind of flaunt their lack of center and celebrate the lack of unity they perceived in humanity. So instead of focusing on trying to understand the human condition as an objective thing like the modernists did, um, as a unifying thing, postmodernists realized that the variety of the human experience was so astounding that they decided it could not be wrapped up singularly. So they stopped trying instead. Um, they celebrated otherness and difference and accepted the possibility that there was no truth. Um, or rather, there could be multiple truths. Now, you should at this point, this should sound pretty familiar, considering that we live in an era of, you know, alternative facts and post-truth and fake news. Um, and this is why postmodernism is so hard to define. It's, it's a catch-all phrase that encompasses various ways of looking at literature and in and of themselves seek to, that in and of themselves seek to undermine any attempt at definition at all. So this is why we're kind of stuck in postmodernism still, actually. The ambiguous nature of it, as well as some of the tools it has developed, which we're going to discuss in a moment, have stuck with us. Um, but this is changing, and we're going to talk about that way later. And, and what I'm personally interested in, um, when I go back into my PhD next year, what I'm going to be studying and writing about and thinking about, what I have been thinking about since my master's thesis, is what comes after postmodernism. And this is very much in flux now. So what I want to talk about now are several distinct modes of thought that postmodern has given rise to that I think are useful both in literature and, and I think they're also very useful in life. So I'm going to cover them very shortly now, saving more depth for later when we actually get to apply these tools and this theory to the works in this unit. Um, let me note here that I'm giving you these uh, slightly out of the order in which they are developed. And again, this is one of those things where you know, somebody comes up with an idea and then later thinkers really codify that idea and really make it into a full-fledged thing. So there's a, there, there's a dialectic here, a dialogue that's happening that kind of defies summation and I'm summing it up anyways. So bear with me on that, okay? Let's start with deconstruction, which is one of the most fundamental tools to come out of postmodernist theory. Um, and again, it was developed by people who maybe maybe not wouldn't would not have identified themselves as postmodernists, but it's basically been lumped into that uh, section now. So deconstruction focuses on the rhetoric of a work, the meaning of the language, with an intent to break it down beyond the apparent or surface meaning, revealing the subtext and the contradictions beneath. This is both predicated on the idea or reality that there is no single truth. So deconstruction also seeks to undermine any claims. Um, to truth or authority, thereby leaving meaning open to the reader's interpretation. So I'm, I'm starting with this because this way of looking at a piece can be used in any of the following ideas that I'm going to present here. Um, and again, we're going to actually try to apply deconstruction to some of the works we're reading, and so you'll get a deeper, better sense of what that means later on. So let's jump a bit, a ba a bit back in time 
and talk about existentialism. So this is a philosophical position made famous and developed by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, or Sartre. I'm going to go with Sartre because I've heard it be said that way before. Um, the most famous existentialist and, and the developer of the theory. The, the basis of existentialism, um, and these quotes that I'm going to use come from one of his books called uh, Existentialism is a Humanism. I tried reading Being and Nothingness, and it's impossible. Existentialism and humanism is much easier and much more direct and, and much simpler, and he, he wrote it later in his life as an attempt to try to sum up his ideas in a way that may, made sense. So the basis of existentialism is the primacy of existence. That's to say, we exist first, and all attempts to understand or organize that existence are post hoc rationalizations of the reality of existence. So here are two quotes that I think are useful. The first is, quote, existence precedes essence, and subjectivity must be our point of departure. The second quote is, man first exists, he materializes in the world, encounters himself, and only afterwards defines himself, end quote. So from this way of thinking, there's basically no human nature or essence. There's only what we choose. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because it's a rabbit hole that you can go on forever. If you're interested or want to talk about it, just let me know. But one interesting conclusion from this line of thinking is that humans have total responsibility not only for their behavior but for who they are. And for Sartre, this total freedom and responsibility leads to a kind of anxiety and dread and nausea. And those are, those are words that he coined. Those are his words um, in everyday life. One of the most famous writers that focused on this philosophy was Albert Camus. The Stranger is his most famous work, and he has another novel called The Plague, um, which is equally good, if not better, and, and actually pretty interesting considering now that we're living in a pandemic or through a pandemic. This is where absurdin, um, absurdism also enters. The absurdist artists from the 50s into the 70s tried to explore this view of the human condition through works of art that hinged on chaos, fragmentation, and counterintuitiveness in a way that attempted to mimic the general discomfort they all felt was the experience of the modern human. Another interesting and useful idea to come out of this period of postmodernism, and one that I'm personally really interested in and I think is really uh, useful in the real world, um, is called dialogism. And this is the narrative theory of Mikhail Bakhtin. This theory is specific to novels, and it hinges on the way, on the observation, which seems obvious until you really look at it, that all language is always uttered, that's his word, with the relationship between the speaker or writer and the listener in mind. There was a lot more theory here, um, but what I want to focus on is his conclusion. Meaning can only be understood in the dialectic, that's the interaction between different elements of a novel, mainly between the self and the other. If you were to if you were to kind of group those together, so when you're reading a novel, you can't privilege one voice in the work over another. Rather, you need to look at everything in the novel: the narrator, the various characters, the subtext, the rhetoric, uh, the author, all the historical con all of it. Um, and from all those different elements, which often point you in different directions if you look at them indiv individually, and and often are in tension or contradiction with one another, you need to synthesize meaning from the ways in which they interact. Um, and it's that in that synthesis that you can get something more true and, and, and that encompasses all of the possibilities better than looking at any of these individual elements. Um, and, and I want to note here that Bakhtin developed this from reading um, Dostoevsky's works. Dostoevsky's works are famous for having these characters and these dialogues where it's difficult to kind of understand what the author wants you to take away from them because there's so much contradiction happening and often his narrators are not the most trustworthy. Um, and so Bakhtin developed this as a way of trying to understand Dostoevsky and then later applied it to 
more broader sense to other novels. And I think this is useful in the modern world. We're living in an information era where we have so much information coming at us all the time. And a lot of us deal with this by privileging one voice over all the other voices. But according to dialogism, if this is true and useful, then the best way to do it is to try to listen to as many voices as you can and understand as many voices as you can and then synthesize from that. Um, and I, I think this is rather interesting. So let's get to the last one that I want to talk about. And this one that, that is maybe the most interesting, um, I, I think is very interesting as well, and, and perhaps actually the most important and the one that really sits in the real world the most. And this is post-colonialism. Um, in a lot of ways, post-colonialism is almost the postmodernist project fully realized and actualized, combining everything we've looked at above, as well as a bunch of other stuff I skipped over, um, in a way that brings literature back down to the human experience from which it came. I want to note here that um, one of the criticisms of modernism that a lot of people leveled at the time and have leveled since, of writers like Eliot and Joyce and Wolfe, um, was that they're just super difficult. And you like to understand Eliot, to fully understand T.S. Eliot, you basically have to have a degree in the classics um, and have be, and you know have read all the classics from Greek onward and, and to really understand and make sense of his work. Um, and Joyce is in a similar way. He's, his later works dealt so heavily with Celtic uh, or Celtic mythology and, and language that reading Finnegan's Wake is almost impossible. Um, and so a lot of post-colonial writers try to bring things back down to the real world and, and, and the things that really have happened and the history people live through. Um, in political and histor historical theory, the post-colonial period is the face, phase countries enter after the colonizer has left the area. So this would be like India after the British left and, beca and India became its own nation. This, as most of us probably know by now, is a very complex time for a country and for a people. One of the things that happens after a colonizer leaves is that writers begin to write about what it was like to live in a situation, often with an ear towards understanding the more subtle, less obvious psychological ramifications. The story these writers produce, stories about the oppression from within and from without, stories about how the colonized people have learned to live both as themselves and as subjects, stories often about violence and deprivation, stories that require an understanding of the past but also an eye for the future. Um, these stories are what we mean when we talk about post-colonial literature. And so there's a ton more to say about each of these, but I think it'd be easier to end things here now. Um, after you have read the works, I'll try to flesh out these ideas a bit more um, as we discuss the actual works themselves. In the meantime, as you read, pay attention to how in The Destructors by Graham Greene, the act of destruction the kids engage in has meaning beyond the physical act itself, meaning that dives deep into their individual and collective consciousness. While you read How by Ginsberg, notice the fragmented structure, the contradictory language, uh, and the subversive imagery that all work together to offer meaning beyond the simple words. And finally, in Crick Crack, the novel, which is more like a collection of short stories, um, notice the way it covers multiple generations and explores how the trauma of the colonizers passed down. And finally, also pay attention to how the individual society and the state all interact to create the experience of the characters in that, in that collection of short stories. Um, if you keep those things in mind, I think this will prove to be a very, very interesting unit for you guys. Um, these are some of my favorite works here, and then we'll get into them more deeply, um, and I'll try to pinpoint some of these ideas and really flesh them out for you in the next lecture, um, part two of this. So happy reading, I hope you enjoy, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.